A reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 13 to 16, and chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, and he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, Well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, You are witnesses this day, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphras and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. So tonight, we're in our, this is our last week of Ruth. Next week will be our first week of Lent. Um, so we're wrapping up the Ruth study tonight. And 
Um, as you know, we've been doing kind of a, uh, a typological study of the book. So we've been looking at kind of some of the symbols that can tell us something about today. And, and we've been doing um, what would be called an ecclesiological typology, if you want the big nerd word, um, which means we're looking at what this type would say about the church, what it has to say about the church. We've been using Naomi really kind of as a, a type of the church through this whole study. There is um, what we would call a soteriological typology, if you want a, a real nerd word, um, which is looking at this as a type of salvation, Boaz's redemption of Ruth. A lot of people will study it to look at kind of Boaz's treatment of Ruth and look at how uh, that's a type of the way Christ deals with us. But um, we've been focused on kind of the, the church side of it, what this has to say to the church body. Um, and week one, we set the stage with the um, talking about how it happened in the time of judges and all that would mean. Um, and then week two, we talked, we got into the story for the first week. We talked about how this is a story of breakdown, of falling apart. This is a story of disaster, um, that it starts out with a famine um, that drives these people out of their land. And then when they get where they're going, Elimelech dies, his two sons die. Naomi winds up alone and broken, um, so broken that she uh, renames herself from lovely. Uh, Naomi means lovely. She changed her name to bitter. Um, called me Mara, which means bitter. She was so just kind of broken and beat up. Um, but then we went to, we kind of skipped ahead that week to the end of the story, which is about redemption. That um, not only does Naomi wind up with an heir, but um, that heir, they just keep perpetuating all the way to David, which was kind of when the book meant to stop. But we know that it goes through David all the way to Christ. And so this broken woman who lost everything winds up being in the lineage of the Messiah, which is um, about as redeeming as you can get. So um, and we talked about just the, the impact of sin in the world, um, just kind of holistically, that it really impacts everything in our world um, and that God is about redeeming those things, all those things. Um, then week three, we talked about Naomi's commitment, her big, where you go, I will go, your God will be my God, your people, my people. And talked about the timing of it, how interesting it is that she made this commitment before she ever met Boaz at all. So really, she's uh, Boaz typically stands as kind of a type of the Messiah. Well, she makes her commitment before she ever even meets the Messiah. And we talked about how that a lot of times that kind of stands this church. A lot of people come and what they really fall in love with is is the church itself. And they like the people. They like what's happening. And they get kind of engaged. And in that environment, then they're able to meet Boaz and that uh, they're able to meet their Redeemer. And sometimes um, uh, we have a tendency to, you know, try to get people to believe first and then follow. And a lot of times it's, no, just come and follow us for a while. Be a part of us. Join us. And then um, we'll let God take care of the belief. We talked about the wheats and the tares and that week and how uh, Jesus made it very clear. Our job is to let the two grow together. It's not our job to sort out which is which and pull them Pull out the tears. And last week, we got into Boaz a little bit and how he initiates this relationship with Ruth. And he goes to her and, and uh, he sees her out in the field and, and, and she grabs his attention. And he goes to her and first he starts just doing things for her before she even knows he exists. He tells his men, hey, take care of her and throw her a little extra barley. And so he's caring for her before she even knows he's, he exists. And then... He goes to her and says, hey, don't go to any other fields. Just stay in my field. My guys are going to take care of you. He kind of initiates this relationship with her. And then she goes back to Naomi and tells her story. And she goes back and says, man, this guy named Booth. And if we're using our types, it's like her coming back to the church and saying, this has been happening for me and that's been happening for me. And we talked about Naomi's role in this moment. 
as she says, here's what's going on in your life. Um, and she kind of gives language to Ruth about what's happening. She's like, okay, this guy is a kinsman redeemer and he's going to take care of you. And here's what you do next. And, uh, and so her job, we talked about that Simon and, e, uh, Samuel and Eli story when Samuel, the word of the Lord is coming to him. He doesn't understand what it is. And he goes to Eli and, um, he's like, what do you want? Eli's like, I didn't call you. And, and there's this confusion. And finally, Eli has the job of saying, um, Samuel, that's God calling you. And he gives, he gets to give definition to what's happening. We talk about Eli does not introduce God to Samuel. God introduces God to Samuel. And all Eli really does is tells him, this is what's going on. This is what's happening in your life. God is moving in your life. And here's how you respond. And so we talked about liturgy. And liturgy is this way that we um, help people find and approach their Boaz. Um, that when they're here and, and God is moving in their life, we kind of give them some structure. And we say, here's how you approach your God. Um, and, and in the church, we tend to do this, but we get it a little messed up. What we hand people is when they come and they have an interaction with Boaz, we give them rules. Okay, well, now that you're in, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And we, get, we kind of burden them down with all these things, um, which is close, close to what we're supposed to do. But instead, we, what, what we're supposed to do is when they come, we say, okay, now here's what that means. We, we worship together and we pray together and we hear the reading of the scripture together and we bless children together and we go to the table together and we study together. And, and those are the things we hand people as they come in to say, here's how we approach Boaz. We use this, this kind of ancient form to say, let's gather together and approach um, God together. So um, we did that last week. Then we ended after I rambled on for way too long um, with uh, our liturgy. We talked about our liturgy and why we do what we do just a little bit. Um, so that brings us to tonight's passage. And tonight's passage is kind of interesting. So um, Ruth obeys Naomi and she goes to Boaz. Um, we talked last week that um, Naomi kind of breaks out her feminine wiles a little bit and says, if you want to win this guy, here's how you do it. And um, Ruth uh, does it. She she goes to, to his tent at night and she curls up at his feet and, and he wakes up and sees her and, and it's, it's got to be a symbol for something because he responds like, oh, I can't believe you chose me. This is so awesome. So laying at the feet must be important because nothing else really transpires. But he takes it as a, you know, almost a proposal here, which is awesome. Um, and then uh, uh, he starts to set things up. He says, OK, here's what we're going to do. There's some things in place um, that we have to do. And we got to go through some kind of formal things here. Um, and he kind of lays that out. And uh, and we do need to do a little bit of historical work, because I don't know if you noticed, but there's some kind of weird stuff that goes on with the inheritance here, which is kind of fun to look at. So let's read this last part together. Um, then he, Boaz, said um, to the Redeemer, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, and she's selling a parcel of land that belonged to your to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of the of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is one other besides you to redeem it. And I have come after you and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Boaz said, the day you buy the field to redeem it uh, from the hand of Naomi, you acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead uh, in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for... uh, I can I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So this is actually kind of a fun 
smooth move on Boaz's part because he's obviously pretty well versed in in the inheritance law, if you want to call it that, of the time. Because he gathers a crowd of witnesses, which is important. He gets people um, gathered around and he offers this deal um, to uh, this other kinsman redeemer, which looks good. He's like, you know, there's a piece of land um, that... Uh, that you're first up, you're the next in line of um, relationship. And so this land is yours if you want it. Um, and he says, uh, of course I want it. Yeah, it's a great piece of land. Now, one thing we have to notice here is um, there's some inheritance rules in Israel where if a close relative dies, you marry that person and you, um, you have a child with them and that child is not yours. That child is is your brother's. If it's your brother that died, that child is from then on considered to be your brother's child. You have given an heir to your brother. And so if, um, if from that point on, your, that child inherits everything that would have been your brother's. And, you have, and he doesn't get any of your stuff. If, if you, you, you want an heir, you have to have another child. And so this piece of land for this uh, kinsman redeemer, considering Naomi's age, this is a this is a golden ticket because she's too old to have an heir, which means with no heir, this this land is is up for for total grabs. It doesn't go back to somebody come jubilee. This land is is from then on yours. So usually you run the risk is if you buy a piece of land and you have an heir, it doesn't really become yours. It becomes this heirs and they go off to this land. But um, but in this case, with the age of Ruth. This guy, well, it's just basically free land. He pays the price and it's, and it's his. Um, and so he's like, of course I want it. Yeah, this is gr- a good deal. And, and you notice that um, Boaz does it in front of witnesses. He's like, okay, super, it's totally yours. Oh, and by the way, um, there's Ruth, um, which means there's uh, a lineage. Like if there's Ruth, now he has to marry Ruth, have a kid, and there's an actual airline where the land doesn't actually come to him. It comes to this air. And so he's like, oh, great. And you notice he kind of held that back at first. He's like, hey, there's a piece of land. If you want it, take it. It's yours. Um, if not, I'm going to take it. He's like, well, of course I want it. You know, why wouldn't I want it? He goes, okay, cool. Then you marry Ruth as well. And the guy's like, oh, man. And the fact that he says this might mess up my own inheritance means he probably didn't have an heir yet. And so... If he has his first son, his firstborn son is with Ruth, then he still doesn't have an heir. And that, and his land may go with, to no inheritor, but, but Elimelech's land will go to this firstborn child. And not really understanding biology, they just assume that your kids are like stacked up, you know, and you don't know the order. It might go boy and then four girls in a row. You don't know. And what if my one and only chance at a boy goes to Ruth and then I got nothing but girls after that? And so he was like, I can't, I can't risk it. I might mess up my own inheritance. I don't want to risk giving Ruth a boy and securing that inheritance and then not even having a secure for my inheritance. And chances are the reason Boaz is pushing this as fast as he is is because if this guy has a son with his wife, then it's totally worth the risk of marrying Ruth. And if you have a second son, well, now he gets something too, and it's great for everybody. So that's why Boaz is kind of like, Let's do this. Let's do this now. Let's get witnesses so he can't just put it off and go, well, let's just wait. Let's just wait till next year. We'll talk next year. Like with witnesses, you can't do that. So Boaz is pretty slick here, the way he puts this thing together. He, he kind of pins this guy down so that the guy has no choice but to bail. And Boaz gets the land and with it um, gets Ruth. Now, this is the big question um, is why? 
Why does it matter? Boaz is obviously wealthy. We kind of find that out through the rest of the story. There's nothing that keeps him from just marrying Ruth, bringing Ruth into his house, get a mother-in-law you know, um, house for Naomi and be done with it. Like, what's the, what's the big deal about redeeming this piece of land? He clearly doesn't need to. Um, there's no reason to do this. And we really don't know. We assume that there's a principle of lineage that he, um, as a principled person, he knows that progeny is important, like uh, legacy is important, and he wants to give, keep this land in the family and whatnot. And, and we really don't know exactly why this is so important. It doesn't seem to be necessary. Um, but I'm glad he did it because it really helps in the metaphor I've been using for this study. So if for no other reason, it helps in our typology. So that's why I believe he did it. No, not really. But here's what I think. I think the forms matter. I think the rituals matter. I think the, the, uh, the going through the motions matters. He goes through this big elaborate process when really all he had to do was marry with. And it seems like the deal's done. They make the bargain. It's, pretty much over, but he decides to um, go through this big elaborate show to do it right. And, um, and we have a name for that in the church, and it's the word sacrament. And we're going to break this down tonight, and it's kind of a fun, this is going to be a little bit of a fun study, um, because I think there's a lot of confusion and disagreement about the sacraments, what are sacraments, and what are these sacraments, and, and how they work and what they do. Um, and so my hope is to kind of contrast um, sacramental theology and doctrinal theology a little bit. So we're going to do a little bit of nerd work and talk about these, um, the difference between these two things. And then hopefully um, maybe imagine together what a holistic theology that kind of incorporates both might look like. Um, and that's a tall order for one night. So let's dig in. So the sacraments. Let's start with this. Just in case you don't know what I'm talking about when I say sacraments. Um, these are kind of the, the standard breakdown of the sacraments. If you're Catholic, um, you believe baptism, confession, communion, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, and last rites are sacraments. These are um, holy things that are, uh, that are done by the church um, on behalf of people. And it's a way that God communicates his grace. Anybody know what these are? Anybody not know what these, any of these are? Maybe pretty comfortable with these. Holy orders is uh, joining the ministry. They say they have seven sacraments. It's really kind of six because you either get married or you take holy orders in the Catholic Church. So each person really only gets six. There's really no um, like uh, possibility of just a single life in the Catholic Church. They expect you to either marry or um, take holy orders. Uh, if you are a Protestant over here, um, you generally have baptism and communion. Um, Luther, not all Lutherans, that's why I put the, in parentheses, not all Lutherans, but Luther believed in confession. In Luther's, uh, uh, short catechism, he adds confession, or what he calls the keys to the kingdom, um, as a third sacrament, believing that something sacramental happens when we confess and declare the words that by the authority of Scripture you are forgiven, that something sacramental happens in that moment. Um, and then there's a couple, the Quakers, the Salvation Armies, who don't really adhere to any sacraments. They don't take communion. They don't um, baptize because they uh, they kind of have a none and everything thing. They think that everything in the Christian life is sacramental. Therefore, setting two things aside 
um, is unnecessary because everything you do as a Christian is a sacrament. And so they have a little different approach. So those are the things we're talking about. Um, and it seems that there's not really that important of a difference, right? When we look at it, at least we all kind of adhere to the core too, except for the weirdos in the corner. Um, kidding. I love Quakers. Um, but, you know, so if somebody wants to tack on a couple lectures, what's the big deal, right? But really the, the difference is considerably more fundamental. Um, and it's really in the definitions. Um, and it's kind of hard to talk about sacraments because if you're a sacramentalist, which, spoiler alert, I am, um, then something about defining and, and detailing them robs them of their power and purity a little bit. And so it's kind of hard to try and break them down a little bit. So second spoiler alert, if you're hoping I'm going to tell you exactly what transpires in the midst of the sacrament, that's not going to happen tonight because I can't do that. But um, uh, but we are going to do our best to talk about them as hard as it may be. So um, the difference is in these definitions. If you um, adhere to a kind of a doctrinal theology, then a sacrament is an outward sign or symbol of an inward or divine reality. Kind of, has anybody heard that definition before? Some people are kind of familiar with that definition. Um, so the sacrament is something that we do symbolically to represent something or celebrate something um, that has happened uh, spiritually and more concretely. And the sacrament is just kind of a symbol or an expression of that. Um, if you adhere to a sacramental theology, then the sacrament is a physical rite or ritual that communicates or fulfills a spiritual grace from God to the believer. So if you're a sacramentalist, um, the action is the actual means by which God communicates his grace to you, um, the church. And so that's a, a sacramental theology. It means there's something that happens in the action itself that communicates a particular grace uh, from God. And this is a huge difference. I don't know if you can see the subtlety here, but this is a major, major difference. And a lot of the debate we have about sacraments um, are really just debating fine details when your core definition is this different. Um, you're really talking apples and oranges. Um, and sometimes it's easier to understand uh, if you experience the other. If you've, if, has anybody here ever uh, not raised in a Catholic church but visited one? Has anybody here not raised Catholic, visited a Catholic church? <clears throat> a lot of times what you do is you sit there and you go, what are they, like, what was that? Like, they, the, the sermon went on for like seven minutes and he didn't really say anything. And then they have this big, long, elaborate communion service that um, that was like, and you just don't get it because it doesn't feel like anything happens. That's because to a sacramentalist, that big, elaborate communion s- service was God visiting his people. That was the um, that was the presence of God coming. They believe that that act um, has a particular power um, to it. And what's funny is um, when you come from a sacramental background and you go to um, a doctrinal church, you're like, I, I think I just went to a lecture. I don't even know what, what just happened. There was nothing of awe and reverence, and it was just like information with music at the beginning. Like, and, they, and they don't get it because there's nothing in that kind of reverent, um, awe-filled uh, experience that, that they feel like they get from the sacrament. Um, and these, dif- dis- these dis- differences go back to um, these kind of core definitions. Um, and what's fascinating is if you're fulfilled by kind of your approach, then you go to the other side and it seems weird and empty and you don't, you don't get it. 
Um, but when you're not, you go to the other side. There's a lot of people who were raised Catholic and they didn't really get it. And they go to a doctrinal church and they're like, oh, it was like the guy was talking right to me. Like so good to get information and it feels like refreshing. And there's actually a big push right now. The Catholic Church and some of the uh, more sacramental churches are actually growing right now for the first time in a long, long time because people are like, um, they're almost information overload nowadays and everything is is rational and everything is so debate oriented and 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 uh and kind of philosophical that they're like it was awesome just to go in and experience the all and they're like refreshed by just this kind of sacramental approach to things and so um so it's kind of interesting but since most of us are protestants um and come from kind of a doctrinal background, I'm going to start by kind of arguing for more of a sacramental approach. Uh, and then we'll talk about combining the two. Um, let me start by saying this. I think Western evangelicals have a real kind of sacramental confusion, if you want to call that. That's us. Um, uh, most of us are fall into that camp. Um, and we argue over the sacraments. And this is what's ironic, is we argue over... Like whether you should dunk or sprinkle, whether you should do it when you're young or old, whether, you know, it should be grape juice or wine, whether who can take it. Does it have to be members of your church or just Christians or can kids take communion? And we debate over all this stuff. And then we define it as the symbol that represents something totally different. And if all it is is symbolic activity, then who cares about the details, really? Like what's funny is we fight so hard for something that then we define as not really meaning much. Like really, our definition says it's just kind of a symbol or a celebration of something more concrete that happened. And if that is the case, then who really cares about the details of of how it happens? That's one of the confusions. The other one is we have some activities that we deny as sacraments, but then we define them like they're the the most important sacrament. I think marriage is, is, or defend them. I think marriage qualifies. Most evangelicals, um, only most Protestants only accept two sacraments, communion and, and uh, baptism. But then as soon as the government wants to mess with the definition of marriage, we, we run to it like it's, you know, like they're trying to take away communion. And we're like, you know, no, it's got to be defined this way and blah, blah, blah. Because what we're saying is there's something sacramental in that act. There's something different about that act that is sacred and you can't mess with it. But we won't call it a sacrament. We treat it like one or we defend it like one, but we won't actually call it one. And so we just have a real confusion, I think, in the in the kind of the Western Protestant evangelical world as to what exactly a sacrament is and what it means. So. um, So let's look at, I guess, the two sides of of this argument a little bit. Generally, we have two approaches to faith. We have what we call doctrinal and sacramental. Um, doctrine usually has a high emphasis on the word, on scripture. And it's more about understanding and rightly articulating scripture. So uh, a doctrinal faith is all about um, kind of rightly understanding and explaining the scriptures. Where a sacramental faith has a high value on experiencing particular ordinances um, and activities of the faith. Um, and the problem is the the doctrinal side kind of got blown way out of the proportion with Descartes. I think we've talked about that in here before. Um, Descartes uh, had his big um, kind of thought experiment where he just tried to dis- doubt everything that could possibly be doubted. 
Um, and when he finally came down to it and he had cleared everything he could possibly doubt, he said, well, I know one thing that I'm here asking these questions right now, that I'm a thing, that I exist, because if I didn't exist, I wouldn't be able to sit here and ask myself these questions. So I may not know anything else, but I know I exist. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Because I'm sitting here thinking, I obviously exist. And then he said, if I exist, and in my memory I did not create myself as far as I know, then something had to have created me. And that means that there is a creator, so it's only logical that I exist, which means it's only logical that God exists. And the church applauded him. They were like, yay, you've logically proven God. Like, and it was a big benefit. You've now rationally given an explanation for God. The problem is, everybody that came after Descartes, um, that kind of fell on that same line, didn't recognize that what they were doing was saying, God exists if and only if he makes sense to my brain. So my brain is actually above God a little bit in that only if it's logical and rational and reasonable can it exist. Can that be God? And so we, we kind of took our own logic and reason and put it on the throne and said um, before that it was God existed because he said he existed, because he's God. And if the scripture says something, we believe it because it's in the scripture. And now suddenly this push for we believe it if it's rational, we believe it if it's logical, we believe it if it makes sense. And that became really the, the kind of fundamental element um, of Western uh, Protestantism after that was, was this rational approach to everything, um, which was just an overcompensation of medieval Christianity because the, the sacraments did get badly abused by the Catholic Church in medieval Christianity, there's no doubt. And so the, the reformers were, were trying to fix that. But I think the problem is that these two things, in Scripture anyway, always go together. The sacrament and the, uh, and the Word. So it says, Jesus said, this is the, the Great Commission, which we're all pretty familiar with. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I guess the reference got cut off. Um, so we're kind of used to, to, uh, to the Great Commission, but we forget the Great Commission always carries the sacrament and the word, the teaching and the practice. It has both in it. And then it's most play, it's played out in my favorite way on the road to Emmaus is, um, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is Jesus talking to the two disciples on the road. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven um, and those whom were gathered together. I think I skipped something there. But when he sat with them at the table, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. Um, so I love this, that he teaches them the whole walk and the teaching is creating this burning in them, but not until the bread is broken, not until something in this, in this breaking of bread, the sacrament um, that they knew well from him, are their eyes open. The second that the bread is broken, something happens in their vision that they, they actually recognize and see Jesus. So Jesus reveals himself through the word and the sacrament. Even more, I would argue that a high sacramental faith, um, to have that, you have to have a high respect for the word. I think that's what makes a sacramental 
faith work. Um, because the reason we value a sacrament, and really the only reason, is because the Word tells us to. I mean, ultimately, that is why we think the sacraments, sacraments are important. So, for instance, the doctrine of transubstantiation. Everybody know what that means? Anybody know what that means? It's a Catholic doctrine where, um, where the bread and wine are physically changed into the body and blood of Christ. Um, and so something in the process. And, and this didn't actually get codified in the church until like 1215, I think. So pretty late in the game, really. Um, and it happened because... Uh, of this movement around Descartes to understand and break down everything, to break everything down. And so they get into these real intricacies of exactly when does it change? Does it change on the table when you bless it or when you eat it and blah, blah, blah. And, like, and they're having all these really intricate debates. And then the, the reformers come along and they argue about all of it and they throw out most of it. But what got lost was the simplicity of it, the simplicity of Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, and saying, I don't understand it. I don't need to understand it. I don't need to know if it changed, when it changed, where it changed. All I know is this is my body and this is my blood. And I take it at face value because the word says it. I don't have to break it down beyond that. So we debate over baptism and how to baptize. Is it essential? Is it not essential? And if it is essential, what does that mean to the nature of faith alone? And blah, blah, blah. And what we leave out is whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And I just take it at face value. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And I, do I need to know what happens if they don't get baptized? Do I need to know? No. I just take it at face value. If the word says, believe and be baptized, then I believe and be baptized. So the, the, the question becomes, despite what we work out logically, do we believe the word? Do we take the word at face value? Do we believe the scriptures? And I would argue that to have a high sacramental theology, you have to have a very high respect for the word. So I believe in a sacramental uh, or a holistic approach. I believe the sacraments are the very first place that our faith hits the real world, like hits the road. Um, you know, we we say, you know, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be part of this. And somebody comes along and says, OK, cool. You have to get dunked in this bathtub, you know, and and obviously there's part of us that's going to go. That is weird and makes no sense. Like, I don't understand. And sometimes we're just so excited to be a part of something. You know, we jump right in. People do that. Like, yeah, and we're like the Ethiopian. What keeps me from getting baptized? You know, we, we like it. But it was the very first time we're like, this makes no logical sense. Like, this is, this is bizarre. Why would water have anything to do with this? And we're tempted to kind of default back on our, on our reason. And this is the first time that we're kind of confronted with, are you going to take the word at face value? Are you going to do what the word tells you? Are you going to be baptized? And, and so, we, so we do it. And, and ultimately, it's like, what's going to rule in your life? The scripture or your logic is, is really the question we're confronted with. We stand over the table and we, we recite some words of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat. And we're tempted to say, what does dunking bread in a cup of juice have to do with anything? How does this declare the Lord's death until he comes? All the intricacies of, of atonement and everything Jesus did for us on the cross, how does this thing have anything to do with that? And we're tempted to say, you know, it's just, a, it's just kind of a symbolic thing we do. It's just, you know. But do we believe this is my body? This is my blood? Are we going to 
say if if he says this is how we declare his death until he comes, then that's good enough for me. I'll do that. Luther said it this way. I love what Luther said about the sacraments. He said, faith must have something in which it believes. That is something to cling to, something in which to plant its feet, in which to sink its roots. Thus, faith clings to the water and believes baptism to be something in which there is pure salvation and life. Not through the water, as I've emphasized often enough, but because God's name and his word are joined to it. So Luther feared what he called reflexive faith or faith in faith. People get so caught up in their faith that it's they're, they're trusting in their own faith to save them. So really their faith is kind of in their faith. So if you ask them, you know, how do you know you're saved? It's like, because I have faith. And, and so their faith is the evidence, and which is partially true. But Luther would say, if you ask Luther, how do you know you're saved? He's like, because I've been baptized. And in order to believe in baptism, I believe in the word that says baptism saves me. In order to believe in the word that says baptism saves me, I believe in Jesus who said those words. So I'm, I'm attaching my faith to something concrete and real by saying, I, am, I have so much faith in Jesus that I believe and do what he told me to. And so my faith has, has something real to attach itself to. I can point to it and say, this is what my faith's in. I'll be honest, like a lot of people don't think that of Luther because we attach him you know, so much to faith alone that we, for, that we don't realize he was a sacramentalist. Luther was, was a, a major sacramentalist. Um, and I think this is important to us as believers because I think we're supposed to live ultimately a sacramental life. I think the Quakers probably have it closest. If we were perfect and we were right on, we would, rec- we would recognize the sacramental nature of everything we do. Um, why do we give to the poor? Aren't they just going to use it to buy booze? You know, does it make any sense? Blah, blah, blah. No, we give to the poor because it says when you do this to the least of these, your brethren, you do it to me. That's why. And we don't know what they're going to do with it. And we, we, we weren't asked to be their accountants. We were asked to give to the poor. And we have to ask ourselves in that moment, do I believe when I do this to the least of these, my brethren, I'm doing it to Jesus? That's the question. Do I believe that in some way I'm serving Jesus when I do this? Why be faithful in marriage? Haven't we gone beyond that? Haven't we kind of evolved to, to understand that, you know, we kind of live in a free sex, you know, in society now. Like, what's the big deal? And we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that the two become one and that it somehow reflects this mystery, like this mysteriously reflects this, the nature of God and the Trinity? Like, do I believe that? Why do we confess our sins? Doesn't God already know when we've messed up? Doesn't he already know everything? And isn't that just kind of all under the bridge because of the cross? I got a a question. Do I believe when the Bible says confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed? Do I believe that? Do I take the word at face value? Why gather to church? Can't we just listen online? I mean, really, we have more church available in our pocket than the biggest theologians of history ever thought would exist. Like we have more resources to God. And so we have to ask ourselves, what's the point of, of all this? And then we have to say, do I believe the scripture where it says we're two or three gathered together? There I am in their midst. Or do we believe there's something in the gathering that, that draws the presence of Jesus in a, in a way that's different and almost sacramental? Why do we lay hands on the sick? Why do we bless children? The list is never ending. Everything in our lives have this sacramental quality. And our hopes 
are that eventually, yes, we would see the sacred nature of everything and everything we do and every decision we make and everywhere we go would be a sacrament. But I think the, the kind of core sacraments are where we get our, our beginning. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because our word is a sacred thing. Like hopefully we, we understand our word is a sacred thing. Honor your father and mother. Why? Because something in this parental relationship is sacred. And it's, it's got a sacred nature to it. Use, you know, fair and even equal scales. You know, when you do business. Why? Because business is a sacred thing. It's a sacred commitment. And we use good scales because it's sacred. It's not just money making. And it's that all of these things are sacramental. And I guarantee if you're not willing to be dunked as an act of salvation, you're not going to be willing to give to the poor. At least not sacramentally. If you're not willing to dunk bread and juice and say, this is the body and blood of Christ, you're not going to use proper scales in business and recognize the sacramental nature of business if you're not willing to recognize the sacramental nature of bread and wine. That there's something in the sacraments that draw us into a more sacred understanding of everything. That if we're willing to take the word at face value in the things that Jesus actually commanded and told us to do, then maybe we will be in these other areas. Then maybe we start to recognize that there's something in all of this. So how do we respond to this? First, as I said, um, I am a sacramentalist. I believe in the sacraments. I believe something real transpires. I think in my life, God has done and continues to do a work through the sacrament itself. I, I just believe that. Um, if you're not a sacramentalist, if you're, uh, if, if it's just weird to you to believe that that, that's fine. I'm not trying to convince anybody. There's nothing, um, but I, I believe in a high sacramental theology. Um, I personally think confession is a sacrament. Um, I adhere to, to that. Um, I think when the Bible says, if you forgive any sins, um, they are forgiven. And if you withhold any sins, then they are withheld. That's in John 20, 23. Um, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another, you may be healed. For the prayer of the righteous man has great power as it's working in James 5. I take these at face value. I believe there's something spiritually significant about confessing your sin to another human being and hearing a human voice say, based on the authority of Scripture, not based on me, I don't have any right to forgive you, based on the authority of Scripture, I say the words, you are forgiven. I think there's some power that happens in that moment. that, And we might logically be able to reason out. And Am I willing to say that if that doesn't happen, the sin is... No, I'm not willing to say that. Am I willing to say that you know the forms have to be held perfectly or the person doesn't get forgiven. No, I don't understand it. I don't know. I just believe that something transpires, something real and spiritual happens when we confess. And when someone else says the words, you are forgiven to us. I think there's something sacramental in that. Does it have to be a priest or a pastor? No, it can be anybody. It can be any, any Christian can, um, can do the confession with us. But I believe it. I, I personally believe marriage is a sacrament. I think the two become one. Um, can I explain this exactly? No. Um, but I believe something meaningful and real happens when two people stand before God and make a covenant. And, uh, and, and, and I'm not trying to like sell a particular list. I think there are other things that 
probably qualify. And I'm not trying to alter like Protestant orthodoxy. I'm content to hold with the two basic ones, you know, as like accepted sacraments. But I do, um, I do think we're supposed to recognize that the forms matter. That doing the things that, that Christ commanded us to do matters. And it starts with these simple acts, these things we call sacraments. And, and then when we do those, we start to notice that something about obeying Christ um, does what it's supposed to do. I think our faith is supposed to be deeper than political causes and like in a, intellectually defending our faith against others, like uh, deeper than morals and ethics. I think it's about a real relationship with a real Jesus. And I think we engage that relationship first and foremost, through the sacraments. So tonight, um, as we do our response song, as we sing and, and gather around the table, um, I want you to do an experiment with me. Um, as you dip the bread in the juice and as you take communion, um, just maybe for a second, open yourself up for God doing a work in you through that activity. And, and maybe just filling you up in a way, nourishing you in a way that, um, that maybe you're not used to. Maybe you would ask him, and even if it's just a step of faith, like, God, okay, I'll, what do you have for me through this? Like, what do you want to do in my life? What work do you want to do? Maybe start that work through this act of obedience.